start over. Way back when I was in college, <laughs> which feels like I was in a galaxy far away, 43 years ago, in the dorms and out and about on the radio, a song was just repeatedly playing over and over again. And the title of this song is the same as the title of today's message, Gotta Serve Somebody. We're in this series, I Am a Servant, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Here's 27 seconds from that song. You're have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. All right, anybody guess as to who this singer-songwriter was? Bob Dylan. You win an A for the day. And did you know that in 1979, that particular song, not only was the first song he wrote, when he took a turn toward Christianity, it divided and alienated most of his followers because he began to present a worldview very different than what he was presenting before that time. Did you also know that he won a Grammy Award for Best Rock Male Vocalist for that song? I think, are you kidding me? Bob Dylan? And yet, apparently, what do I know? Yeah, he did. And uh, that song repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, um, there was a reaction, again, with a lot of his following, and there was a, a mockery song written by Lennon, John Lennon, who used to be a follower of Bob Dylan, but just hated the song, and so he wrote this mocking song called Serve Yourself. Now, that is particularly appropriate because the world has been divided on this issue not since 43 years ago, but since Adam and Eve. And so, we need to start with this question on the screen. What is meaningful life all about? Is it about serving God or is it about serving ourselves? Which way of living is truly freeing and satisfying? That's, those are great questions. I called it a question. They all belong together as one question. Now, that very question is where Adam and Eve got it wrong. And ever since, we've all gotten that question wrong. Completely wrong. And yet, we need to get a hold of this message because... Um, this message is not a message that is just a message about something like so long ago, it feels like it's a galaxy somewhere else, far, far away. This message today and this question today is right where we live. And it's probably one of the most important questions we need to wrestle down to the mat and figure out how we're going to respond and live 
Because we're all aiming for the most meaningful life we can aim for. If we don't get this question right, we're going to be in trouble. And that's what this message is all about. Now, it's not an easy message because the only way to really talk about this meaningfully um, is to say that spirituality is at the very, very heart and center of this message and to explain how spirituality works to affect your viewpoint on whether serving God or serving the devil, which is done in a way that you don't even know it, whether that is a relevant question or idea. So we're going to dive right into the deep end of the pool, right at the beginning as we talk about spirituality as it relates to this question. And so point number one is this. There are two masters in this world. There are two masters in this world. Now before we talk about that, we need to kind of talk through a little bit about this idea of serving. We've been talking about serving for a couple of weeks now. In the first week, we talked about how that's how we were created. Our very nature was created to be servants. And last week, we talked about what's so great about serving. And now we need to talk about the fact that the way we think of serving is completely different than the way Jesus thought about serving or the way all the apostles thought about serving, because the way we talk about serving in our culture doesn't reflect well what their culture reflected. Instead of thinking about serving customers, which is kind of how we think in our world, or perhaps serving your employer, it might be how you think, or even serving your spouse or your children. That's not the way Jesus spoke, nor is it the way the apostles spoke when they start talking about serving. Because in their culture, we're talking about serving a master like subjects would serve their king. And we don't think like that. We don't think like how our entire world is dependent upon the benevolence and goodness of a king. Or, in a bad way, dependent and affected by a wickedness of a king. That we end up serving the master... And we have very little say in it before a king. Now, also in that culture is a culture of slavery. And slavery was a way they filtered this idea of serving that you're, you've got to serve your master. Slaves thought in terms of you don't really have a choice. You have a master. You serve your master. Interestingly, after Jesus spoke and after Jesus taught and after he delivered a rescue to his followers, the followers began to think of themselves as voluntary servants in a slave sense because they love the benevolent master and they want to be bond slaves to him because he treats them so well. Because previous to meeting him and previous to their rescue, they were slaves to disobedience. They didn't want to disobey. Their disobedience led them to places they didn't want to go, but they could not help it. Now, a lot of them didn't know that until later when they understood themselves better. So do you see right away that we're in the deep end of the pool? Now, also you should see right away that I believe some things that a lot of people in this world do not believe. My worldview includes a real heaven, a real hell, 
a real judgment that's coming, a real God, a real Savior who's the Son of God, and a real devil who is a rebel who has usurped the authority of God when he was supposed to be serving humans. He thought, humans? These skin bags, are you kidding me? Look at me. I'm the most glorious of beings you've created. You want me to serve them? You want to look at that? You can look at Ezekiel. Uh, I don't have that written down where. 28. Isaiah. Uh, I didn't write that down either. 14. Uh, <laughs> but the, it, those things are what I believe. Now, before you're ready to get up and walk out because it's like, really? He believes in the devil? For real? And he really believes in a real heaven? I thought this was going to be like practical. It really is. Let me explain why I believe that. And this is just a, the short version because this was Jesus' worldview. If you're a follower of Jesus, you want to think like Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, which I believe he is, when he speaks this worldview, he is actually speaking the truth. He's revealing to us what is reality, and we need to understand that reality if we're going to get anywhere in this reality. Now, you can test his teaching to see if that reality matches actual reality in your life. And I have come to believe that it not only matches, but just like he said, it's real. And he believed it. He operated from that base. He came to take over and establish a kingdom because the world had become a rebel kingdom under a rebel ruler, master. And that's part of the program where a choice was given, and now God is going to take from all of us those who choose to be voluntary servants of a good king because we want to, because it's the best for us, and because his kingdom lasts forever. And the other kingdom is going to be judged. I believe all of that. I wasn't going to get into all that, but we did. Now, the apostles, Paul and the rest of the apostles uh, would agree, summarized the rebellion and the rescue in various ways throughout the New Testament. I want us to jump to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 3 as we see these summary statements about the rebellion and the rescue and talk that through a bit. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, let me just pause there. Uh, let's get a little bit more so that you can see that I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, Jesus presented... The kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of the heavenlies. And at one point, he said, it's here now. So there's a kingdom which we cannot see. It's in the heavenlies, and yet it's not far, far away, in a galaxy far away. It's not beyond the universe. He now brought it into our world. But it's in the realm we cannot see. But also in the realm we cannot see is this ruler of the kingdom of the air, also in the lower heavenlies. Okay, the kingdom of the air, the very atmosphere of the earth itself after he's cast out of heaven. He's ruling a now rebel planet. Verse 3, 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Our very nature switched and changed with the failure of Adam and Eve. And now by nature, we were objects of wrath. Why? Because we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And we couldn't help it. We couldn't stop it. We couldn't rescue ourselves. And we were stuck doing that. And this all because of a rebel ruler who seduced us into that place through Adam and Eve. Do you see the rebel ruler? The ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, there are two masters, even now. Even after Jesus' victory, it hasn't been completed yet. He predicted a day when it would be completed. People think, well, if it's all so great with Jesus, why is this world such a mess? He said it would be until he returns, okay? We're in a world with two masters and two kingdoms, and one's a dark master in rebellion, and the other is the king of kings, the lord of lords, and he has established his kingdom, and he's coming back, and he's going to reign forever. After the judgment, we don't have to worry about a wicked world anymore. Okay? So, do you see that there? Do you see the way that he rules? It's not the way you think. He rules through the disobedient, verse 2. Whether they know it or not. And the devil is at work in us, in his kingdom, and operating through us, through our disobedience, for his pleasure and his anti-glory, if you could say that. He thinks of it as glory. Darkness doesn't shine. So I have to think of it as anti-glory. How does he do this? Paul tells us, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time. That was us. He's, talking, he's writing these letters to Christians. Churches. The church in Ephesus. A circulating letter, by the way, that just took it all over the whole area. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. That, we're no different. We were them too. Okay? But what I want us to see here is how does he do this? The devil uses our own desires against us. Let that sink in. Let's say it together. The devil uses our own desires against us. Why is that so important for it to sink in? Because our world teaches us, follow your desires. Our world teaches us, your heart is the best guide you've got for this world. Listen to your heart. Listen to your desires. What do you want out of life? And everybody is choosing whatever they want. And the devil is using that in his rebellious kingdom. It is a horrible idea to let your desires be your chief guide in life. Let that sink in. How do you make decisions? Do you make decisions based on what you want to do? I hope not. There's disaster lurking there. The devil uses our own desires against us. 
that surprises so many people, even Christians. It's like, what? I'm not supposed to listen to my desires? Yeah, Jesus taught this and lived it and showed us how to live this thing. And here's the thing that's really interesting. Jesus' desires were not sinful, ever. But he did not use his own desires as his life's guide. Why? He came in the same way that Adam came, with innocent desires, innocent heart. Desires were not evil. And just like the first Adam, the devil came at the second Adam, Jesus. And Jesus, without a sinful heart, recognized the danger here because your desires, though not sinful, can be used against you to then cross over into sinful desires, which he never did. I want us to just briefly examine what took place at Gethsemane when he knew that his father's will was for him to voluntarily die for us and pay a ransom price with his own blood to set us free from the rebel slave. And Jesus was horrified the night of Gethsemane to think, I have never from eternity past been separated from my father. Father, if there is any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that question. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't desire to do it, but not in a sinful way, in a trusting way before his father, wrestling the question down. And he finishes the wrestling match with, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Innocent desires still wanted not to do it, but his innocent desires, he would submit to the Father's will because only the Father's will is a sure guide for your best interest. And only the Father's will is trustworthy for us to lean into and learn from and seek out. And Jesus prayed and prayed and prayed with regularity, a prayer of faith, with the Spirit's help in his life to know the Father's will and only do the Father's will, not what he wanted to do. This, my friends, is what it means to follow in the ways of Jesus. So critical that we understand this. It doesn't mean, say the sinner's prayer, now I'm in, I can do what I want, be forgiven, and get to heaven. <clears throat> right? Jesus called us to deny ourselves. You want to be my disciples? You must deny yourself, deny your desires, take up your cross, and follow me. What does that mean? He went and showed us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death. We sign up to follow that. That's what it means. Your will, Father, trumps my desires every time. Let me try to answer through a word picture how it is that this rebel king, Satan, the devil, um, 
attempted to take it over, and what's the methodology he uses? And what's the methodology he continues to use? You might think of him as very wicked and very evil and very um, just, you know, seducing you to do evil. Eh, I've got a better picture for you than that. He is the captain of a pleasure cruise ship. His domain is the pleasure cruise ship that he keeps presenting to us and inviting you to enjoy your desires, your delights. Come. And he might say something like this. Yeah, on this party boat, you can do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Help yourself at the bar. It's all free. If you want to play soccer in the dining room, go for it. If you want to break the lamps, don't worry about it. Have fun. This is the devil's seduction. Come join me in my domain. I promise you a grand and wonderful fun party. And he smiles this big, winsome smile because he masquerades as an angel of light. And he wins you over to doing what seems like the best course of action that's going to bring you joy and fun and pleasure. But he's a liar. And he knows something about this boat that he's not talent. He knows he has a limited time left on this planet, that he is defeated, and he is angry, and he is hateful, and he's going to get back at God, and the only way he can get back at the Almighty is to get back at us, his creatures. And so he's going to take us down. He's going to take as many down in judgment with him as he can. And as he takes us down, it is his pleasure and his anti-glory, if I can describe it that way, greater darkness, the pursuit of power over you and manipulating you that brings him momentary and short-lived joy, even though he knows he's doomed. He has invited you on this ship it's a sinking ship. So here's a picture. It's not the best one. But it's just a visual parable I'm giving you that a sinking ship is the party boat. That's the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has a different ship. You're going to have to forgive me for this one. He has a fellowship. It's a fellowship of followers. I've already described to you what following is like. It's not following your desires and following your wants and following your wishes. It's following the will of the Father. In the steps of Jesus, the way Jesus taught and demonstrated what it looks like to serve God in this dark world. And this fellowship is a particular kind of ship. It is not a pleasure cruise ship. It is a rescue ship. And this rescue ship has every person on the ship is a member of the body of Christ filled with the Spirit of God who has been given in advance precious work to do to make this body of Christ function as a rescue ship. In advance, he has given you good work to accomplish that he has prepared in advance for you to serve on this ship, not be looking for comparing what the menu is like and whether you'd liked what was delivered to you. Oh, customer, customer, church member, you are not a customer. 
You're a contributor. You're a servant. You are the church. You don't look to the church to serve your needs as if the church has the menu that's the best one and the best ship for your pleasure cruise ship. All of us are on a rescue mission. Colossians 1.3, no, 13, Colossians 1.13 reads, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Here's the good news. That was a short statement of good news. Here's another short statement of good news. Both of these from Paul again. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Now, when I say a short statement from Paul, you need to go, yeah, right. Paul never has short statements. He's known for run-on statements that are really hard to figure out. And just on and on they go. In English, we break them up to make them easier to handle. But man, he's just run-on, run-on, but not here. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That is describing what our life is all about if we're truly alive. If you're truly alive. What am I talking about? If you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because of what he did on the cross, he exchanged his righteousness for your filthy rags of sin. He absorbed them into himself and died for them, paying your penalty, burying them so that when he was resurrected, he could release within you the spirit of God and make you alive so that your dead spirit spiritually could now be alive before God and alive before God. Your soul can be filled with, I understand how God thinks. Your soul begins to think more like God thinks as you study the word of God. And your desires begin to match his desires. You still are going to look to his desires, his will, superseding your own all the time. But you're beginning to learn how to match to his desires and want what he wants. And then your emotions follow as you choose his desires out of obedience through the empowerment of the Spirit of God. We've been rescued. Life now works We can say no to what was destroying us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We no longer live for ourselves or serve ourselves. Followers become like their masters. Point number one was there are are two masters in this world. Point number two is only one is worth serving. Only one is worth serving. Because one, he's doomed. His ship's going down, and the other rescue ship is eternal because it's including everybody that lives in the eternal kingdom of God, and it is going really, really well. And he's not just the king of kings. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, mind you, when he says that, think Psalms 23, where Yahweh is the good shepherd. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. I am the good shepherd, one with the Father. 
and I'm lay, I lay my, down for, my life down for the sheep. He's that good. So I have a question that reads really funny, but it's not a typo. Here's the question on the screen. Do you want to be a servant or do you want to be a servant? Okay? It's your only option. I could even put it this other way. Do you want to be a slave or do you want to be a slave? That's just what we're talking about because I already let you, know, let you know that the way they thought of this word is different than the way we think of this word. One's a good slave, a bond slave, a bond servant that I really love being because I serve the king of kings. The good shepherd who's laid down his life for me. I absolutely will live for him because he laid down his life for me. He gave his life for me, so certainly I will live for him. What do you want? Okay. What do you want? Okay. Whatever you say, okay. If we believe, it's an amen. Yes. We say yes to Jesus. And every time you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to something else. Be thinking about that. Yes to Jesus always means no to the other master. Can't do both. There's no middle ground. It's Paul who explains it best. There's no middle ground. Romans 6.16 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves of, to sin, which leads to death, or to slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what do you want to be? A slave or a slave? Who are you going to offer yourself to? That's the question. There's no middle ground. No, I just want to call my own shots. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what he wants to do or he wants to do. Jesus says there is no middle ground. When you don't serve me and you serve yourself, you're serving the darkness kingdom, which serves Satan's wishes, whether you know it or not, because he operates through your disobedience. Following me? You only have the option of being a slave to darkness or a slave to the kingdom of light, because you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Good Shepherd, who gave his life and purchased you out of that slavery so that you are now his servants. Did you know that a slave of a king, especially a benevolent king, thought of himself as a nobleman? They didn't think of themselves as rags. They thought of themselves as honored noblemen of the honorable king. That's slavery to a benevolent king. There are kingdoms where kings are not so benevolent. They have their servants, but they're henchmen. They know it's not noble, but they have power. They're going for the same thing their master is going for. More power in the kingdom. More pleasure in the kingdom. Every disciple of a master will become like the master they give themselves to and follow. You want to be more like the devil? Keep doing what you want. I'm kind of getting nitty-gritty, huh? Did I already read verse 17? I don't think I did. Verse 17 of Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Play it again. 
This is the song. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Who'd have thought that he got it so right? There are two masters in this world. Only one is worth serving. And point number three, servants obey. So the big question is, who are you obeying? Who is it that you're offering yourselves to? What is it that you're offering to do? Is it obedience to the will of the Father? If not, you're obeying the wrong master. What have you offered yourself to in disobedience? Whether you knew it or not, this disobedience is serving the wrong master. You're on a ship that's going down unless... Listen up. The king of kings commands repentance. A lot of us think that repentance is an invitation. The king of kings commands repentance. Look at the way he preaches. He commands repentance, and the good news is that it's a saving command. And you can respond in repentance, or you can be judged for not repenting. Let's stand together as I've shortened the prayer that I ended our first session with together into a shorter version. If you're willing to say yes to serving Jesus, you're willing to say this prayer. So if that's you, I hope you just say it out loud. If you need to wait and process more, oh, by all means, process. The only way you're going to get to know Jesus is by exposure and interacting with Jesus. Process, process. He is a trustworthy master. I hope you seek him. But here we go. My Lord... Jesus Christ, I humble myself and bow my knee before you. I worship and serve you as my Lord and Savior. I am your servant. I offer myself to you. I will serve, honor, and obey you. Here am I. Send me. Amen. The good news is you're not on your own. You're not just trying to serve. You're empowered by the Spirit of God to enable you to serve in a pleasing way if you'll humble yourself before the king. I know that was heavy, but I hope you'll hang on to it. And I hope you see yourself as a servant and begin to look for ways to serve your spouse, your family. Every time you do, you're serving the king. Your employer, your employees, every time you serve them the way Jesus does, you're serving the king. Be a servant. God bless you. You could probably need some prayer about something today. We have a prayer team to the left of the stage there. We'd be happy to pray for you about anything. Hope to see you next week.